I'm Tim Richard. And I'm Michelle Bolin. And you're listening to the More Train, Less Pain podcast. More Train, Less Pain. On today's episode, we have Dr. Fergus Connolly, who is one of the world's most experienced experts in elite team performance. He's worked with leading CEOs, professional sports teams in every league, special forces units, and athletes around the world, including the San Francisco 49ers, Liverpool FC, the New York Knicks, Google, the Navy SEALs, the Carolina Panthers, U.S. Special Forces, Verizon, and many others. He has written three books, 59 Lessons, Working with the World's Greatest Coaches, Athletes, and Special Forces, The Happiness Handbook for High Achievers, and Game Changer, The Art of Sports Science. In today's episode, we discuss Fergus's love for CrossFit in order to push his comfort zones, the usefulness of KPIs, facilitating learning and the development of others, the value of qualitative information, how to sustain success with elite performers, training with intent, making mistakes, creating a fun and safe environment, and much, much more. So without further ado, here is our episode with Fergus Connolly. We'll be back to the show after this quick message. Whether you're a trainer, coach, or therapist, our jobs are hard. And oftentimes, the last thing we want to do after a long day or week is sit down and write ourselves a quality fitness program. During my first few years out from physical therapy school, I found myself falling into this trap and repeating the same ineffective workouts that yielded the same familiar aches and pains along with the same old strength numbers or running paces. Towards the end, I found that it started to sap some of the enthusiasm I was bringing to the table when working with clients, and I couldn't have that. One of the best personal and professional decisions I've made in recent memory was hiring a coach to design my own strength conditioning programs. Removing the pressure of constructing my own workouts was massive and enabled me to experience different facets of training while continuing to progress towards my unique fitness and performance goals. That's why I'm so passionate about my remote personal training service. Every four weeks, you get a new program fully customized around your time demands, injury history, performance goals, and equipment availability. Each exercise in the PDF is linked to a YouTube video of yours truly, so you always know what you're supposed to be doing. We'll chat on Zoom for 30 minutes during the first and last weeks of the program, and I'm available seven days a week for questions or video feedback via email. Take a major step towards your mental and physical health today. Let me program for you so that you can rediscover why you love training in the first place. Find out more by going to timrichart.com slash services. And now back to the show. Welcome, Fergus. We are so excited to have you here. Um, The first initial question that I always throw at people that I'm very interested to hear is, what was your last training session specifically? Oh, uh, (laughs) last one was a good one, actually. It was uh, CrossFit, power cleaning. Um, I actually did did pretty well. Kept pushing it, power cleans, um, med ball throws, and uh, yeah, I just remember being bent over the the bar at the end, trying to catch my breath, looking for a spleen somewhere in the lung. So, 
yeah, it was it, it was enjoyable. They got a great coach here, uh, Jason Carroll, and in Tustin, and uh, yeah, he's just he's he's really really good. And I I love it because I can turn up, walk in, and I don't have to plan. And it's mm. it's so refreshing. Like for years, you're writing programs, you're scheduling, and to be able to walk in and to have somebody else put something up on the board, very often something you wouldn't prescribe yourself. Uh, it, it's just such a, this one thing I don't have to worry about. Or, you know, I really enjoy it. Is, is CrossFit your primary training modality then th- these days? Yeah, no, only, only in the last uh, less than six months. But for me, for me, it's good because uh, it just, it suits me. It, it allows me, um, again, like I said, to turn up, not have to worry about writing a program because I might, I might've spent the day before scheduling, writing programs, helping somebody else write programs. So not to have to write my own. It's interesting that I've got some friends who, uh, you know, one good friend of mine, Mike, who's been writing his own for 15 years and, and he loves that. For me, I just, it's one thing I don't have to worry about. And I enjoyed not having to write my own. Um, I also enjoyed the discomfort because I've not, you know, CrossFit's never been um, uh, a theme or a training uh, system that, that I've used. So I, I enjoy um, getting out of my comfort zone, doing something else uh, that, again, that, I'm, that I wasn't familiar with, not familiar with. Um, and you get to as well understand where, you know, what others get from different training systems. So, yeah, you know, you do powerlifting, you do speed, tra- you do all of these different things. It's always good to get comfortable being uncomfortable. And it, trust me, uh, it's uncomfortable for me. Because capacity is capacity is not something that I have. Like, I mean, <laughs> there's there are there's like tell my friends all the time. Like, there's twenty three year old girls just you know walking past. It looks at the end of the session looks as though they haven't uh, broken sweat at all. And here I am bent over my barbell looking for my lung. Yeah, you've always or, loved tossing barbells around, haven't you? <laughs> yeah, it's um, and it's good because again it. Um, you know, it, it, CrossFit, there's, I know there's always been criticism of it, um, particularly from a sporting perspective, but I think until you do something and try something, you, you can't appreciate anything fully. That's why for me, always going out of my comfort zone, trying to, you know, whether it's going to Louis Simmons and trying to learn and understand powerlifting from him, or whether it's going to work with Dan Paff and learn about sprinting with him, you have to go and see things and understand them and try them fully. Um, you know, you can read about things all you want, but just being there is, um, is always, is always a good, good decision to make. Yeah, that's, and I'm, I'm recording this portion of, of our conversation, my end in my physical therapy clinic, which is in a CrossFit gym. So you just made the CrossFit gods smile upon this conversation, like rich froning somewhere just winked. <laughs> well, I, I think as well, I think, you know, you have to appreciate what, you know, what Greg Glassman himself set out to do initially and give him credit. Um, you know, you know, I've got old, actually very old files of him speaking at, at a college somewhere many years ago, and I forget how old it is, but when you hear him explaining the purpose behind it and what he was trying to do, you go, okay, I can see why. And I, I can understand um, what he was trying to do with it and he did an exceptional job and that's from a training philosophy perspective but then when you look at what CrossFit became uh, in terms of the community and everything else um, you know there's there are many many aspects to it but that's the same for so many different 
training approaches and systems that are out there? Yeah, it's interesting. So I, I think I probably did my first CrossFit workout like 2009, 2010, like towards the end of my college career. And like I remember back in those days, the main site programming, you would have a day that was just like three by three deadlift or mm-hmm. take 50 minutes practice cartwheels. And it was really, really true to Glassman's original vision of like, no, we're like, we are going to try to be exceptional at gymnastics and tumbling and like these just body weight, like really harder to quantify type of domains and you know now it's just become synonymous with like box jumps burpees and barbells yeah and it, it's yeah the, the philosophy and the the origin is always interesting from uh for me with anything like what what the intention was because you you have to ask why like what was you know what was the intention originally and you can see that um and funny enough like my good friend brian mckenzie was there with greg way back at the beginning and um you know, I texted him one morning and he, he texted me, he texted me back and he said, what are you doing up so early? I said, I'm just coming from CrossFit workout because I, I work out at 5 a.m. because I can get it done early in the morning and that's it done for the day. And, you know, he said, how's it going? I said, well, just another morning of humiliation again, you know? <laughs> and he said, and he said, well, why are you going at 5 a.m.? And so well, I go at 5 a.m. because, you know, it's, it's the smallest group and I also get it done for the day. And I said, but man, I said, there's some people here so fit. And he said, you idiot. He said, all the fittest hardcore, the, the hardcore um, CrossFitters go first thing in the morning. He said, you're probably in with the fittest group that's going to train all day. And I go, yeah, that doesn't actually make me feel any better. But yeah, it makes <laughs> a lot of sense. So you're there at the back. You're there at the back, you know, in your box, just like I said, bent over the bar at the end of the day. But it's good. It's, um, yeah. it's humbling, Man, I don't, which is always a I good don't. thing. I don't think there was any bigger Brian McKenzie fan in like 2009 or 2010 than me. Like when he was coming out with like really, like really came up with a concept for CrossFit endurance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And ent- an entirely different tangent. Um, yeah. And I, so and I've, 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 I've trained, sorry, I shouldn't say I've trained with him. Like, I mean, I've been in the same gym, just the two of us working out. So I've been there with him, but yeah, he's, he's got a head of an engine. Um, he's, he's got a head of an engine. He's a great guy. Yeah. And in terms of like percentage skin covered by tattoos, you know, no one can touch him. Oh yeah. He's, he's, <laughs> he's so funny. We've got, yeah, we we're just talking about that actually the other day as well. Great guy. So changing gears rather abruptly, <laughs> but getting, getting to the pure meat and potatoes of this conversation um, in preparing for this conversation, did a little bit of just research on your Instagram, found a quote that I wanted to have you expand on a little bit. And it goes, one of the greatest errors we see in modern society is the influence technology has had on our thinking. We adopt plug and play mindsets that we bring with us when dealing with everyday issues. Expand on the notion of a plug and play mindset and how that might be deleterious in dealing with specific everyday issues. Yeah, I think from, uh, from a sporting perspective, I think sometimes we we've been so influenced by technology that so for example you know you've got a a camera or microphone you just plug it in and it solves that particular problem but when it comes to humans and when it comes to how we as um, complex adaptable organisms how we function plug and play doesn't work in the same way so we have this imagery or this idea that we can just plug one thing in. So it's a vitamin. We've got one vitamin. We just plug that in and it fixes everything. It's not really how the body works. It's the same with any modality. And so when you're addressing, for example, 
say a stress issue, you have to use a, a multifaceted approach. So just take stress as an example, just can't use sleep or you just can't use a vitamin or you just, you can try it, but that alone is not going to solve it. You have to use a multifaceted approach. So take a look at diet, take a look at um, one's perception of the world and belief system, take a look at um, rest and recovery, take a look at the input and output and create a program. But then it ha also has to be multiphasic because it's going to have an initial impact. And then you want to continue to progress that adaptation. So um, that's why, I, you know, when you talk about the human being, it's complex, it's, ad it's ad adaptable, and it's an organism. It's not um, a piece of machinery like your car where you just take out a piece and fix it. And so I think just reminding ourselves when we're dealing with humans, you know, that it is, again, a complex, adaptable organism. I think it's really, really important. Just, just that having that different mindset and not taking it from technology to, uh, to people. Yeah, I, I absolutely love that. Something that Michelle and I discuss quite frequently on this show is the notion of key performance indicators, KPIs. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're both dealing with humans. Like I'm dealing with injured humans. She's dealing with, you know, making better humans, fitter humans. And that just really resonates. Like there is no one modality that's going to yield a specific outcome 100% of the time. There always needs to be an intervention and a KPI that you're tracking to determine efficacy of that intervention. Doesn't matter if you're a novice clinician or a trainer that's been doing this for 25 years, there's still complexity to manage and uncertainty to manage. Yeah. And what's interesting about KPIs are, um, you have to, again, just as you choose a KPI, you have to be careful because you're looking for an outcome. So for example, it might be that it could be happiness or it could be contentment or, and then you're, you're or it could be um, stress, reducing stress. So then you're going to choose a KPI and you have to be careful which KPI you choose. Once you identify that and you've taken your time to pick the right one, then you can put a program in place to impact that KPI. But again, the KPI may change a little bit down the line, you know, if, as you tick it off. And so that's where it becomes really, really helpful. Um, and that's why, yes, KPIs are really, really uh, helpful. Um, and again, just making sure you pick the right one. And then knowing as well down the line, okay, we might want to pick, we want to, might want to change it now that we've ticked this one off, you know, as, as we go. Uh, it's the same with, um, the simplest example might be if in a team sport, Obviously, you want to win the game, so you identify key KPIs that are important. So it might be, for for example, it for your team, it might be getting the ball into a particular area. Now, early on, as the team develops, that's the KPI, and you start to win games. Then maybe you don't, you're not winning as many. So now you have to adjust the KPI because you've adjusted for that, and so now it might be converting those scores. So it's just recognizing how the KPI moves and develops, you know, it's not just a, a fire and forget. So yeah, knowing your KPIs and then figuring out how to, how to solve them. And that's the exciting part. Like as a coach, um, that's, you know, that's the fun. And it. it's like, you know, CSI, it's, you know, you, you got this problem, you got to solve it. What are the clues? How are we going to solve this? Yeah, so that kind of brings up two things for me of, um, you know, I've heard you talk before about not thinking in a linear direction. Um, and that kind of 
for me, in terms of like putting context on that, that's, you know, being flexible in my programming or within my sessions for someone based on day-to-day kind of changes, chaos, being kind of adaptable and exercise selection and programming. Um, so, and then you talk about, you know, not controlling complexity and that's kind of like that linear direction, right? You're trying to kind of control some, something in a way, but you talk about facilitating and influencing. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so um, it's like if you spend time around children, you can order them what to do and they may, you know, follow what you're doing. But if you can facilitate their development, so you create like uh, boundaries and so they begin to learn themselves. Now they take ownership and now they experience it. If you just tell someone what to do, they're not truly learning it. Now they'll eventually learn things over time. Just telling someone or giving someone a solution uh, is not as effective a way of learning as creating the environment and facilitating their learning. So start to learn more and more. And this goes for anything in life. You know, it's the same as, for example, if you want to teach someone how to cook, you, you know, give them general guidelines and let them start to experiment gently. So it's differential learning. They're learning, they're learning, okay, how to cook it the next time you know, they burned a little bit. So they know not to do it as, uh, not to have the heat as high. And so they start to learn and they develop not just, not just the, the knowledge, but they also develop a passion for it. And so with people as well, you want to facilitate their learning, not just tell them exactly what to do. Now you have to be careful as well as a coach because different people have a different interest in how much they want to learn. So again, not everybody is like us, you know, who we want to know all the different layers. Sometimes you've got a client who just wants to know what they have to do and that's good. So it's understanding how much information you want to share with people. And I, I do, I disagree with this phrase that comes up all the time. You have to give somebody all the information. <laughs> no, you don't. Not all of the time. <laughs> you know, sometimes you got to just create the environment for them, give them a few directions, but you don't need to tell them all of the details. Um, but some people do want to know that. So then you have to be able to do that. So it's it's knowing your, knowing who it is that you're dealing with and understanding where they're coming from. That's the most important part. And that's education versus exploration, right? You know, you talk a lot about trying to get coaches to let athletes explore in the environment which where they're kind of going to compete instead of, you know, like you're talking about providing like strict education and telling them what to do. Yeah, it, it all depends on, it depends on the challenge that's in front of you. If you've got an immediate problem, sometimes there's no way but to tell them, listen, right now, I just need you to do this, this, and this. We, we all have those scenarios. But if you're trying to build something that's sustainable and that develops uh, a drive and a passion of its own, you have to balance that with creating that environment where they continue to learn and they find it exciting and they grow within it. But there are times when, yeah, you have to go, look, this is, I need you to do this and this right now so that we get things, get things started. Um, but it's important as well that you recognize the, you know, the, the person that, that you're dealing with and you want them to explore, but within boundaries, you know, so mm -hmm. you create those little guardrails, um, I use, I use the image often of having wild horses in a field. Like you, you're going to set up the fence, but you decide where they're going to run 
and find out where those boundaries are, but you control where those where they are themselves, and that's your your job. And so you can direct them to learn within that. One of the really interesting, totally false dichotomies in the fields of strength and conditioning and physical therapy right now is this tension between like movement nihilism that what the thing looks like doesn't matter all that much, just load it intelligently and progress slowly over time. And then biomechanical perfectionism, which like, you know, this joint has to be in this specific position. If it's not, then it's not correct. And it sort of makes me think of exactly like everything that you just described, where for an immediate short-term fix to a problem, that model of biomechanical perfectionism could be really useful. Like you're, you're moving like A and I need you to move like B, but over the long term, if you're actually creating a like resilient, adaptable athlete, like the name of this podcast, um, it's far more useful to be in a role where you're encouraging an athlete, a client to explore their own bodies, explore their own movement. Yeah, it's, it's a great point. I think, uh, so on one extreme, like you said, you've got this idea that there's a perfect uh, movement pattern which is false, really. You know, at the elite end, um, you know, I remember years ago, we would have so-called speed experts come in and say, this is exactly, you know, how someone needs to run and this is the exact angle. But it varies. It varies completely dependent on the athlete. Like, I mean, I, the, the classic example is looking at uh, Carl Lewis and Ben Johnson, just simply because they're so different um, physically and realizing, okay, you've got two completely different athletes who have two completely different running techniques also have two complete run two completely different races, but the outcome are times that are so close together and recognizing then that you've got completely different people coming. So there's no one perfect technique. And then on the other side, like you said, you just, it can't be complete chaos. So again, it's about looking, at those fences like what are the boundaries what are the actual limits for some angles the joints should not go okay but within that then you've got athletes who need to be able to express themselves what also we need to take into account of course is that um which is far more interesting are that people develop will have injuries over time so they have to compensate so their movement structure the movement signature whatever that really means is going to change over time because they're going to compensate. So I've had ankle injuries. I have to squat a little bit wider. or My stance has to be a little bit wider to compensate for that. And so knowing that and not forcing somebody into, you know, giant angles that they're not going to achieve. And so, again, knowing the short and long-term view of where you want to get someone um, is, is important. To, and again, there's a brilliant, there's a phrase that I've going to use quite a lot recently is, you know, hold that lightly. So this is an angle or this is a, a goal, but just hold it lightly because don't be absolutely stringent on that. And again, that comes from, you know, a cultural or societal mindset where we love to quantify things exactly. And we have a, this number, or this angle. But again, with complex adaptive organisms, you just have to be a little bit careful. I think about uh, specifying this exact percentage or this exact number that you have to achieve because as humans we, we don't quite work it that way so you mentioned um quantitative like data and you know your for the your textbook game changer was one of the most unique 
textbooks I have ever read in terms of sports performance, because it was the only textbook that I've ever read that dived into, you know, the athlete's perception of the world and their beliefs and who they want to be as a person and taking them as a human being into consideration in their performance. And no other piece of information I, you know, took that into account. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, the value of qualitative information and maybe positive reinforcement in, in terms of creating an adaptable athlete and improving performance as compared to maybe the over-reliance on um, quantitative data? Yeah, so this came about, Michelle, because I, my question always was, you know, what does it take to be an elite athlete? And then, and so I started out looking at very early on, okay, what are the percentages and the ratios that you should have between, you know, bench, for example, and squat and power clean and all of these formulas, like what are the numbers? And then, uh, you know, I was just fortunate to be around a lot of brilliant athletes. You start to realize, hang on, many of these guys don't have these ratios at all. In many of the things that you're taught to believe about elite performers are not true. Like, I mean, some of them don't have perfect diets. Uh, many of them don't get up at 4 a.m. or 4.30 and train, but they, and so the perceptions and the things that are written, uh, you know, one ESPN article or a Sports Illustrated article or whatever it is that says, oh, this is what it takes. But then you, you see many of them don't have these things. Now, what do they do? Well, across the board, generally, the ones who manage to stay in the business they do all of the things in or about, and I'm going to use a number, 80% of the time. You know what I mean? But they tend to be tend to have a balance. What I started to realize was it wasn't just in sport, though. Outside of and away from the field, they started. A, they had generally a pretty good balance, or they were very, very diligent professionally, and then used a personal life that blew off steam, or they all had different interests. So you start to realize. There is a pattern here. It's obviously not the same for every person, but in order to be successful, you have to stay in the business or stay in the game for as long as possible. That's a combination of professional and personal life. And so it wasn't just quantitative. There were also things that they were doing that I couldn't measure. And so that started me to look, give me the direction. Okay, it's just not simply about squat bench, uh, power clean, or it's not simply about things that we can measure. So it's a lot more complex than that. Um, and more and more of the coaches that I would spend time around, I realized they had a very good understanding of the qualitative aspects that made elite athletes great. That's really where it came from. And it was writing. It was, you know, obviously get a lot of criticism from academics going, well, you know, you have to have, this formula and that yeah that's fine but that's not what really happens in the real world with elite athletes mm-hmm. we've uh we've had some conversations with a couple folks that work in professional basketball and one of the really interesting things that um specifically one of the physical therapists that we talked to brought up was just that the people that he sees able to stick around the league most effectively are ones that demonstrate what he called like emotional variability or psychological variability. The people that knew 
when to turn it on and weren't consistently grinding at that like 11 out of 10 sort of strained manner. Yes. Yes. And that that's, and it, it's so important. I, I refer to that as the plasticity because they can tolerate um, extreme stress and pressure when they need to for periods of time. And then they can switch off and bounce back again. So they've got the ability when it's needed and they recognize when it's needed. So they have the awareness to know when it's needed, when they need to both training and games, but they also can switch off and relax and unwind. And that allows recovery psychologically and physically. And one of the key the area that, that I focus on primarily is sustaining success with elite performers because getting there, you need a certain set of skills to get to the NBA or NFL. But when you get there to sustain performance, it requires a different set of skills. You just can't keep forcing and straining or you're going to, you know, to use common modern parlance, burn out. But you have to have the plasticity, the ability to turn it on, bounce back up and down so that you keep developing. And that be that becomes really a case of th that allows you to optimize your performance. You keep just working hard, burning out and taking, you know, no easy days. Yeah, not going to work at all. Yeah, it's it's interesting. So right now, like my current athletic love, my current movement passion is expedition climbing, technical climbing, multi-pitch climbing. So one of the really big tenants there is when you first learn to climb, like everything is a 10 out of 10 high tension move because you're really mm -hmm. scared you're going to just fall off the rock face. But as you get better, you learn to titrate the amount of tension that's required in your hands and feet to actually go up a pitch. And if you're if you're throwing together 10 or 20 pitches or like Alex Honnold's regularly does like 20 or 30 pitch climbs, you need to be relaxed when you can be relaxed so that you can actually have what you term plasticity. You can have that rigidity and stiffness when you need it and then come out of that state. So it's interesting yes. that that is a that's like a macro life concept, but it's also a very micro, you know, athletic performance concept. Yeah. And again, this goes back to being a complex adaptive organism. The, what's, and the way that you, the way I explained it to, to athletes is your goal initially with anything is to become effective at it. So you have to achieve the task and that costs, like you said, is high tension. So there's going to be huge energy cost, if you will. And actually it's, cringe using the term energy because people just see it as physical, but it's a huge cost mentally and physically to do that. Then your goal is actually to become efficient. What happens then is the energy cost should drop because you're effective at it. But as you become more efficient, you can do it better. So it should cost you less energy. So the idea that you just keep burning off calories or that you keep churning up, what that allows you then to do is to concentrate exceptionally well when you need to. And that's the difference for with high performers. Now, if you think of someone's career early on in their career, they're under a lot of stress or strain learning. Everything's new. So it's a very high learning curve. You can't sustain that over time. The great athletes learn when to do that. And they also keep adapting and learning new skills over the length of their career because they have to keep growing, but it's that efficiency allows them because the energy cost has dropped. Now they've got more energy to learn something new. So it's again, these small iterative increments over time. Um, and that's why, you know, you, you know, you, you watch again, 
when you start in professional sport, you go in and you see guys who take time off or who are relaxed or who are joking. Now you've come from a mindset where, no, you've got to be working hard all the time. And you realize, hang on, no, these guys are actually doing it right. There's, they know when to switch off. They know when to joke. They know when to have a good time. They have that levity. But then they also know when to switch it on. And that's what truly great high performers have because that allows them sustained success. Not just sustained success, but sustained high levels of success when needed. Yeah, I think there's like a, you know, perception of more is always better, right? So in my, my personal life, I kind of, I'm always mindful of three types of loading, cognitive, emotional, and physical. So when I have, you know, maybe a presentation coming up, I know I'm going to have a lot of cognitive emotion. Same thing for like times in my life, a lot of emotional loading. And in that period of time, like I really just focus on doing something physical throughout the day, a very like aerobic focus during those periods of my life. And then when I kind of feel like my cognitive and emotional loading go back down, then it's like I can really push and focus on that physical loading. When I worked in the collegiate setting, you know, there was a perception of, you know, go hard all the time. And even coaches during, you know, finals week would just hammer the athletes into the ground. And then you could easily, it wasn't really hard to see, you know, kids getting sick during that time very frequently. And um, I think it's very hard for coaches to kind of step away from that and be like, hey, like address certain things that are going on in their life as well, and then be able to adapt that physically. So you're not overloading these athletes because that's just not going to help them in competition. Yeah, I I think um, one of the other areas that, you you know, you're absolutely dead right. One of the other things, there are two things that are really important about that point is there's a latency as well. So you've got some athletes can tolerate that because young athletes in the collegiate system are adaptable and they've got a huge reserve because there are a lot of stresses that they don't have to deal with. But what happens then after the exams are they usually relax, switch off, and they have to release that stress or pressure. So some get sick during that period and others get sick afterwards because there's just this release and the body's not in that heightened state to protect itself in some ways. It's the same with soft tissue injury. Sometimes some athletes get injured quite quickly and that's actually a good thing for them, believe it or not, because it saves them from that high load that they're going to come under. The other area that's interesting is if you don't have any stress, sometimes you need to uh, apply that. So you do need to force yourself to do some physical work as well but yeah understanding where all of those types of stress come on on the the organism of the person as a whole and recognizing when you've got too many sources mm. also recognizing that okay you know sometimes you need to ease off sometimes you do need to keep applying a little bit of stress because if you don't have any stress well there's no adaptation at all yeah, and, and controlling that because I, I went through a period where I was presenting kind of frequently and creating presentations from scratch. And I think I amped up so much because maybe I wasn't too comfortable with presenting. So the, the cognitive loading kind of was a lot and more so I would probably yes. say emotional. And, and that <laughs> every single time, the day after I would wake up and I was like deathly ill. <laughs> and then yeah, you just, yeah, you're, you're cooked. And, and yeah. again, that's one of, 
so one of the things that uh, we one of the things that we sometimes forget is that when you take someone out of their comfort zone, so they're doing something that they're not used to, there's a, an incredibly high cognitive load because everything's new. Mm -hmm. And there's an emotional load associated with it. It's something that you're doing in public. So recognizing that and understanding that, again, there is a battery. There's only so much that the body can compensate for. And you can push yourself exceptionally hard for a period of time. And the high performers have to yeah. do that. But you have to know then when to switch off. And one of the one of the things that we all have to learn is, you know, to allow ourselves to do that. You know, and again, like, I mean, that's what, you know, that was one of the things that, again, should have been more aware of myself. Like, I mean, uh, like my TED Talk talks about that, not like burning out by not being, not being in a position where I was able to be aware of, okay, you've so much cognitive, spiritual, and physical stress that's just accumulated and not knowing and not being able to uh, either do it yourself, but very often we need people around us who can either, you know, put an arm around us or help us. And that's where, you know, that's why I talk about having sheepdogs, people who can be that reference for you that you can, um, that will come and say, hey, listen, let's go grab coffee. Let's go for a run. Let's switch off. Let's get away from things. That's why everybody needs needs a coach of some sort. We will be back after this quick message. The biggest struggle trainers have with building their online training programs, attracting remote fitness clients, and maintaining communication is having quality videos that provide exercise technique and coaching instruction. Stop searching the internet. You will never find them unless you go to michellebolin-training.com. Gain access to over 500 unique exercise videos and hundreds of positional variations that you see on my Instagram to send to your remote training clients with the MBT exercise database. And just out of pure curiosity, what would you consider like spiritual stress? So I use spiritual as a broadband. People talk um, often, they use the word societal, but for, for oh, me, okay. it starts really spiritually with yourself. So for me, it's, it's your perception of the world and how you look at the world. Now, some people, for some people, that is largely faith-based. For others, it's not. When I use the term spiritual, that encompasses that. But it's like it's like in relationships or it's like in any dealings with other people. If you yourself don't have an, an understanding of yourself, it doesn't matter who the other people are. You know, it's not going to be compatible. So a lot of people think, well, you can join this group, this club, or be in this relationship. This other person is going to fix me, or this group is going to fix. No, you gotta, you gotta start with the source, the person themselves, what their self-esteem is, how they view the world. You have to start with the person first and foremost. Nobody else is going to fix anybody, you know, just by being around them. So it, it's important for very often with people just to understand, you know, who that person is. Do they know, have they got a good under, a good self-confidence, good self-awareness? I want to take two steps back and just double click on a topic that you and Michelle were having a, a great discussion about. So this notion of work-life balance and energy management, which seems to be incredibly hot in like the entrepreneurial self-help space versus this notion of grinding and working hard. And I suppose my question to you would be, do you feel like the ability to grind is ever one that needs to be 
refined and ever might be a strong word, but when, when would you push an individual into attenuating themselves to the grind versus pulling themselves back and learning to better manage energy over a long time horizon? There is all, there are always times when you have to so-called grind. There are always times when you have to uh, do a lot of work or spend a lot of time or put a lot of effort in. The, go, the key is making sure that it is of quality work. So if you finish at the end of the day and you've done a lot of work, and I've done it recently, like two 12-hour days where I did, but after that, you know, I had three very, very easy days. So there are times when you have to do that. But it's recognizing when, when uh, and there are two, it happens in two ways. Sometimes you have control over it when that's up to you, when you choose to do that. But then there are other times where you've got um, a performance or a game and you don't have any control. But it's knowing that at some stage shortly after that, you have to schedule regeneration time and you have to be aware. Sometimes you don't have control over when that is, you know, necessarily. So you might have to push it off for a day, but you have to fit it in. Um, I was in a room, it's not that long ago with a group of eight people who were um, in the special operations community. And we had a, uh, a really, this was a very high level group, but there was a moment of humor where these guys were talking about having seen clips of uh, college athletes carrying uh, logs and, you know, whatever, and, and doing crazy activities, but they were laughing um, and just shaking their heads in disbelief that some of these collegiate athletes were having to go through this mindless training with no time off and, you know, just grind, grind, grind. And they were just saying like, yeah, we'll do that from time to time specifically for us for a specific outcome, but we will always have downtime and we're always going to manage that. And so there is a, you know, in some scenarios where you just look at what some people are doing and you just go, man, this is, this is just a, a short road to, you know, off a, off a high cliff. It's, it's interesting too, because there's multiple strategies that one could employ, right? Like, so let's say grind is, you know, 95% and above effort. Sometime that's, that's going to be required, like you said, either yes. externally or internally. But it seems like from what you're saying, one of the real kind of long-term plays that you can make is attempt to make the work that you can do while being in a balanced state more efficient so that it takes less out of you. And that would be, I mean, like I come from a distance running background, right? So like in my mind, that is instead of doing max effort speed work, like we're looking to crush the same five minute mile, but make it feel a hell of a lot easier. Yeah. So the, there are the number of different things. So just to allow people to understand you have, if you've got from a, a work perspective or a corporate work-life balance, you've got sport, then within that, you've got controllable deadlines um, that you yourself have to get a task done and you've got a window of time. So you can schedule when works best for you to get that grind done. But then there are also scenarios, for example, team sports or uh, in the military where there are, you can't control when that happens and you have to go, you have to execute and you have to get the job done. In those cases, you have to, you have to schedule regeneration afterwards because you can't move the target. You can't move the task. So it's what it's the person that comes back afterwards. That's what you've got to regenerate and take care of. 
for people who do have control over the schedule, it's making sure that they start it when they're as healthy as is possible, uh, getting the work done, and then scheduling some kind of regeneration or downtime afterwards so that, again, they can bounce back from it so that they can, they can recover. Um, one point that's interesting on that as well is that, you know, one man's meat is another man's poison in that it's interesting for some people, for example, uh, being around their kids is a wonderfully regeneration, uh, a wonderfully regenerating activity, or it can be a really great distraction for others that can be incredibly stressful as well. So it you have to choose the modality for the actual person you know, for who they are themselves. Uh, some things, I remember Corey Carrington, the golfer, telling us one time, you know, for some guys, playing cards was a brilliant way to relax because it took, you know, with PGA golfers, it took the mind off things. For him, he couldn't think of anything more stressful to do. So, you know, knowing what works for different people, and again, is so important. Like, what do they get energy from? Some people love being on their own to do recovery. Some people want to be around others. They want a the distraction. And so, Figuring out what that is, is key as well. So go ahead, Michelle. You can go, Tim. Um, so, so you kind of, you, you know, burst onto the book scene with your, your 2017 book, Game Changer. Your most recent book was The Happiness Handbook. So, you know, a little bit of a tone shift or a object shift between those two books. I guess describe what happened in between and what made you want to shift gears into looking more so at happiness. Yeah, so what I, I had a lot of coaches and athletes as well reach out to me who were looking for advice in the industry and so many of them uh, were just not content with where they were going. The other thing then was I had, I had a lot of um, performance directors actually in NBA NFL who were looking for advice. They were struggling with certain issues. And one of the things that they struggled a lot with was recognizing what they were, were in control of and not in control of. And one of the key things that I ended up explaining to a lot of them was to understand what is within your control and the things that you can manage and let the other things go. You're not in control of those. Don't start getting annoyed or it's spending a lot of time because that was really, that would end up being one of the core conversations I would have. People would come to me and they're getting annoyed about something. I would, you know, bring them around to the realization, well, you're not really in control of that. So why are you allowing that chew up so much of your time? Um, the other, and, and again, that comes again from this perception that just because we can measure it, we can control it, or just because this is something that, you know, the perception is that we control it. Well, you actually are not really in control of that. Um, and then the other one then was you've got when people at a very high level are exceptionally dedicated to something and it doesn't go their way, they confuse very often the idea of preparation with control. So if you, for example, are playing, you're involved in a team, and just as the simplest example, but and the result doesn't go your way, you're not in control of the opponent. You're not in control of the umpires or the referees. You only control what you execute. So the question is, did you do your best job? That's the first question. And if you did, and you played to the best of your ability, if you lost, well, 
don't beat yourself up too much about it. You just have to get better again and improve. If you didn't do your best, then that was within your control. So, okay, now we've got something to work with. And so helping people just understand the difference between great preparation and then what you actually have control over and what you don't have control over helps people, first of all, find that level of contentment, but also it gets them to focus on what they really can improve and what they can get better at. So it sounds like for you, the happiness handbook was just kind of like a logical outgrowth from Game Changer. Yeah, it was something that I, that, um, I wanted to help coaches understand. And the other thing too was <laughs> I wanted to, I wanted to, the two things I really wanted to address was this perception. And I don't want to blame social media because that's not fair, but this idea that everybody else has the happiest life Mm-hmm. or everybody else is perfect. Well, no, they're not. And I've been there, I've been at, you know, at, with people who are you know, great athletes, great coaches. The perception is that they're perfect. No, they're not. Far from it. And so understand that. Just worry about yourself. The other point was recognize the difference between happiness and contentment. The paradox of the book is the book's not really about happiness. It's about recognizing contentment because mo- happiness is fleeting. You know, it comes and goes. You're not going to be happy all the time. Life's tough. It's chaotic. There's going to be, you know, rocky moments. And then there's going to be quiet moments. So recognizing what is what your level of contentment is, what makes you content, how you can control that and understand that. Take the happy moments when they come and enjoy them. Understand there's going to be difficult moments, but don't sway it too much one way or the other, but have that security and, and confidence in yourself and know what keeps you content. And very often, that's the most intimidating thing for anybody else is somebody who knows who they are, knows what their strengths and their limitations are, but, you know, they're secure in that. And that provides you so much, uh, you know, self-confidence, self-esteem, assuredness, uh, because you know yourself, you understand what keeps you or what allows you find contentment. And that just allows you navigate life a little bit easier. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. The concept of contentment, in my mind, sort of occupies the same space as like, like learning to almost like quiet things down, be quiet, kind of accept things as they are, like very meditative type of, of principles. And I think some, you know, a thing that Michelle and I see all the time is like this hard charging type A person that's, again, like to use an overused word, quite burnt out, but they're still looking for an intense exercise experience because they just want to feel things that aren't their life, right? So it's like, instead of pursuing this very non-sexy contentment concept, they're just looking for another thing that's going to be a pattern interrupt in, you know, already they're like their overflowing bucket of stress. Yeah. So it's, it's like, um, it's like a glass of, of water. If you, if you've constantly filled that glass of water and something, uh, bumps into you, it's going to spill. Life is always chaotic. There's always going to be something thrown around. So you, you should never fill it up completely. So in other words, be always charging for something in everything. You have to have that little bit of space that allows you adapt to the chaos that's going to come. And you have to be aware of that and be able to, because otherwise you're always going to be discontent or unhappy with things that are happening. Um, you see it in people all the time who, you know, 
get upset or get annoyed about things that they don't control or people they don't control, you know, and then there are people who just want to get a reaction from you, whether it's on social media or whatever. So being able to navigate that and understand that is so, so important. And I, I think now, because we spend so much of our time on social media, you never truly get to know the other person because you're not, and particularly now during a pandemic, you don't, you're not spending time with people as much, you know, in person as much as possible. So you don't see the whole person. Uh, one of the, the, the core elements in the book is this idea of image and identity. Everything on social media is an image. You know, it's an image that we portray. Sometimes we get trapped up in it. We want to, we want to keep building it and painting it brighter and brighter. Identity is who you are. And the further the, the gap between your identity and your image grows, well, then that to me is where authenticity comes in. At, at the core, you have, you're more content when you're more authentic. There's just less of a gap between your image and your identity, who you truly are. And there are people who, again, I, I guess, find that confusing and it challenges them, I think, quite a bit from time to time. So if anything, you've, you've had a huge like impact on me. I think this, that your latest book kind of shows people in what you've been talking about is like your unique ability to really identify gaps and then create solutions for them, right? You've collected information about what per, per, uh, excuse me, professionals are like coming to you for, and you're kind of providing like an inf information within a book for that. And over time, you know, we've kind of gone back, you were a guest on like my strategy course group classroom. We've gone back and forth about, you know, semantics of definitions of like strategies and tactics and whatnot. And you've really helped me develop my course through, you know, having trainers, physical therapists, whoever, create a flexible system, not to control something or to be super rigid in what you do, but to create a process framework that you can use to get something. So outcomes. And one, I want thank you for that. But what I'm really kind of curious about is, you know, you have a very unique role in, you know, all the places that you've worked in your journey and career. So I'm kind of like very interested in when you enter an athletic program or organization, you know, what's your process for identifying gaps? Kind of what, what are you looking at and how are you trying to improve like their overall systems in regards to, you know, actual outcomes, if that makes sense, just in general? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, thank you, but I think you might have given me too much credit. <laughs> I, for, for me, a, a lot of a lot of what it, what I share or what I've written is as a result of my learning experiences and mistakes and things that I've done. So, for example, um, when and it's a brilliant question you asked me, and I'm, I'm thinking back to last NFL team I went and spent time with. It's easy to go in and point out things that could be done better. And then you pause for a moment and you go, or sorry, things that you might do differently. And then you pause for a moment. You have to consider the environment you're in and what the outcome is that they're looking for. And just, and what you really want to do is you want to provide them with some guidelines that are going to help them achieve the outcome they want. So it varies from team to team. And that seems like a cop-out, but you have to recognize that 
if you come in just with a fixed solution, it's going to work in you know half of the teams and it's not going to work in the other. So you want to get the solution that fits that team. That depends on who they've got. Uh, it depends on the resources they have available. And so you have to find the best solution. The next thing though is how you get them to do it. And very often, uh, depending on the personalities and depending on the team, the smartest way to do that is to ask questions of them. What if you, if you, have you tried this? Has this worked? Or because the higher up you go, you're dealing with very, very smart people, but who have a lot of pride. You can't just go in and tell them what to do. They're already successful. So by asking questions in a particular way, it becomes their solution. It becomes their idea. They, and as well as that, they also have a lot of domain-specific knowledge. They know where the bodies are buried. And so over the years, it's become, for me, more of a case of asking the right questions, very often rhetorical questions, because you know they've got the answer, and you want them to s suggest something. You go, yeah, that actually seems like a really good idea. Why don't you try that? And then you can support it by saying, well, because I've actually tried that elsewhere or there are other things sometimes they'll propose a solution you know it's not going to work well so you can say well when i tried that elsewhere this was one of the problems we came up with do you think that would happen here yeah you know what actually yeah that we'd have the same problem if we tried that and so now it becomes their idea and that's again examples of empowering performance coaches strength coaches head coaches that's an example of uh, facilitating their development over time rather than just coming in saying, okay, get rid of this, move this. This is the best schedule for here, blah, blah, blah. So a lot of it is about how you communicate different ideas to get the outcome, the best outcome for that team or that environment. So most of our listeners are going to be familiar with the Pareto principle, right? Like 80, you know, 80% of your outcome is derived from 20% of your result. Yet oftentimes we see the inverse of that apply. In fact, the inverse would have to apply if the normal direction applied. So when you go into these organizations or these teams and you observe, let's say 80% of their action yielding 20% of their outcome, what is that conversation like in getting an organization or a team to stop doing that which they have been doing? So a lot, a lot of the time we do things because either, either that's the way it's always been done or this is what we're most comfortable with. And so what you're trying to do is to get organizations to look at things a little bit differently and not to be afraid to think and come up with their own unique solutions. And that again comes down to inspiring creativity, believe it or not. Innovation is, there are two, two important distinctions. Problem solving is fixing something that you see there and then and you know that's a problem. And sometimes teams come to you or they know that they've got a problem somewhere and you can help them solve that. Very often though, the, the other areas, innovation and creativity, helping them fix problems or develop solutions to things that they're not quite aware of. And so those two areas work closely together. What ha happens sometimes is, for example, a team comes to you and says, uh, use a recent example, our players aren't fast enough and we need to fix speed. So you come in and you help them with their speed program. But while you're there, you recognize actually a lot of the issues with speed can be addressed through the scheduling of the week. 
So you do start to help them with some of the speed work and tweak that, but you also bring awareness to this other area and you develop a more creative solution or more innovative solution perhaps to how they schedule the speed work. So now you fix speed, really 80% of the improvement has come through actual minor scheduling changes, not through biomechanical analysis and whatever. So again, it's helping people become aware of where they can make the greatest improvements. I want your job, but I feel like I would be horrible at it. <laughs> uh, I, it's, for, for me, the excitement comes in, uh, in the problem solving and having the ability to help teams look at things a little bit differently. The other thing as well is that it's not a kid. I don't have all the answers. These teams, coaches are brilliant at doing what they're, they're doing. And it's really about just, again, empowering them or asking questions of them. Hey, have you thought of doing this? Or sometimes it's a case of one of the, one of the things I learned very early on was to ask, why are you doing something that way before you assume that that's wrong? Like, uh, you know, some coaches do certain things because it works and it works really well and it's got another underlying purpose. Or, and if, if a coach ever comes back to you and says something like, the players really love doing this first, I go, that's very often a good enough reason. Like, unless it's having a, de a de uh, detrimental effect, mm -hmm. you, you don't question that often. So it's like, why, why do you do it this way? Why do you schedule it this way? And if they've got solid really good reasons, then you leave it alone and you come up with other ways to fix the problem that they have. Um, and that's where, that's the exciting part because again, you just, it's not PlayStation, you know, it's not just blocks that you put in place. We're dealing with, we're dealing with people, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so where can people find out more about you? Uh, my website's probably the best place, just fergusconley.com. And uh, yeah, like I mean, from time to time, social media, whenever I take, ha have the interest to do it. I actually, I don't, I have social media on my laptop, but I, I don't, actually, I don't ha have it, but I, I don't have it on my phone or anything else because it, sometimes it can be just so distracting. Um, so yeah, it's, my website's probably the best place. You are not the first guest that we've had on this season of this podcast to say that exact thing. So that no, certainly, I, I don't certainly seems to be a trend among high performers. Well, I, yeah, I do, like uh, social media is great for certain things, but it's, uh, you know, I, I just have work I got to get done. I, I can't afford <laughs> to spend time tweeting or commenting and, you know, uh, doing stuff like that. For me, there's just so much work to be that I have to do. I don't have notifications. The only thing that actually interrupts my day would be a phone call. Uh, everything else, notifications are turned off. I don't have Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn or anything else on my phone. So for me, if if it's really important and somebody needs to get a hold of me urgently, they have my phone number and I, and I want to hear from them. Um, otherwise, I'll check email early in the morning or late at night. And uh, yeah, that's just, and again, that's just the most efficient way for me. It might not work for everybody else, but that's what works for me for now. And then I'll change it if it doesn't. And Fergus, how often would you say that you go for walks outside? Uh, I try and actually first in the morning, like after I work out or if it's morning that I'm not working out, I'll go in the morning, sometimes in the evening. Uh, so this happened actually, uh, there's a rugby player in England years ago. He's a young guy. He had trouble sleeping. And uh, I, I just made three small changes with him at night because I, 
they were talking about um, sleeping tablets and everything. So let's just try this first before we get to it. Within two weeks, he called me to say, listen, he had the best sleep ever. But one of the things was I told him to turn off his phone and stuff, you know, 30 minutes before he would go to bed. But again, when you're trying to make behavioral change, always plug something in. So I said, make sure you go for a 20-minute walk in the evening. And so he, he would start to do this. And I was doing it at the same time because I wanted to understand the effect. And the idea was I knew that if he turned off his TV in the evening and just sat there, TV would go straight back on. So the schedule became, became going for a walk in the fresh air. And uh, that is such a help for him going to sleep. So it's something that I try and do either in the evening and just to clear my head, leave my phone behind uh, and just get some fresh air. Let, let all of those little particles filter. That, for me, the day is like a jigsaw. The, the pieces get thrown up and you just need some quiet time for them to filter down. And the, last point on that, for some people, meditation works great. For others, prayer. For some people, it's just walk, it's mm-hmm. just quiet time. Whatever it is, you've got to find that for the person. And again, help them transition to whatever's going to work best for them. Other than so, our listeners checking out your website, fergusconnolly.com, do you have any other ask of our audience? No, I, th- I think they're in great hands with, with you guys. If they have any questions and they want to send them in to you, I'm happy to come back and try and answer them if that would help. That's again, if I have the answers, but... Yeah. Any other any questions that your audience have, we could do that again. If there's a, a theme of season one for people we've talked to, it's get out and walk and shut your phones off. <laughs> yeah, I, I think um, I think it's the, the social media, like I mean, is is great. You can't, and the other thing too is people, you can't put things into into boxes. You know, they're good and bad. Everything is how you use it. Mm-hmm. But I think taking time away from your phone, being around people. One of the biggest differences is that today we don't we don't get to spend time in, in a community as much as excluding mm-hmm. COVID. But I think one of the downsides were you knew who the, the postman or the mailman was. You knew who, you know, the people in your area were. And you saw them as people in a more complete way. So you saw their positives and negatives. Now, if you just live on social media alone, you only see, you know, people with full makeup, fully dressed beside a Lamborghini at a beach with a tiger in the background. So you don't see the person as a whole. And so I think that's one of the benefits of getting out, just spending time around all kinds of people and just understanding what everybody else is going through and hearing, listening to people. You know, when we do the communication work, I always start with listening. That's the most important skill. People think it's about how you present and how you talk. And I always start with listening, like, and you truly hearing not just what they're saying it, but how they're saying it. So just being around to people listening and learning to listen to different perspectives as well would be very helpful. Yeah. That's a skill for sure. Mm-hmm. All right. Thank you so much for your time for, We really appreciate it. Guys. Thank you for having me humbled and honored as always. Thank <laughs> you. <so> sweet. Thanks again. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the More Train, Less Pain podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. The more positive reviews we get, the easier it becomes for fine movement professionals like you to find us, and the more time Michelle and I can devote to bringing on high-caliber guests and continuing to produce a high-quality show. 
If you're still listening, that means you're pretty cool. And that likely means your friends are pretty cool too. We'd love for them to become fans of the show. Spread the injury prevention love and the biomechanical knowledge by sharing a screenshot of your favorite episode on Instagram. Be sure to tag at Dr. Michelle Bolin and at Tim Richard DPT when you do. Now get out there and go train.